Bienvenue. Hello and welcome to City Breaks Toulouse, episode 9. Gastronomie. To whet your appetite, just listen to the following. Somewhere in Toulouse, at this very moment, potatoes are sputtering in goose fat. Apricot cakes are rising in a warm oven and soups are bubbling in big clay cassole. This is the heart of French comfort food country, a meat and potatoes paradise, where foie gras is considered weeknight fare and cassoulet, that garlicky local stew with sausage and duck confit, is championed by an elected confrérie of chef. Doesn't that make you want to get on a train and get down there straight away and do some feasting? Everyone knows that France is a gastronomic delight, Toulouse particularly so, especially as it's surrounded by such lovely countryside with local produce to die for. You can tell the importance of food in Toulouse just by looking at the number of markets there are. There's the daily Boulevard de Strasbourg, there's the market in the Place du Capitole every two or three days, specialising in organic food once a week. There are at least five other food markets, one specialising in poultry, that's in the Place Saint-Aubin, one even specialising in herbs, in the Rue Gatien Arnoux. They take this stuff very seriously. And the emphasis here, as of course it should be everywhere, but here it really is, is on the local and the seasonal. So if you go in April, you'll get asparagus. If you go in June, there'll be figs and summer berries and new potatoes and all sorts of other goodies. Of course, local means meat, pork particularly, especially the famous Toulouse sausages, and a bit less well-known, something called Noir de Bigorre. Noir, of course, means black. And the Noir de Bigorre is a black-haired pig, originally from the Pyrenees, which feeds on acorns, and which very nearly died out. In 1981, there were only 36 of them left. But a group of local farmers got together, decided that couldn't be allowed to happen, brought it back from extinction, and now you can buy Jambon Noir de Bigorre, very well-known ham, in marketplaces all over the city. Sticking with meat, of course, the other local favourites are goose and duck, pâtés, confit, that sort of thing. But there's also an abundance of fruit and vegetables. And to name just one very local one, that would be the lauragais beans, which are grown just outside the city and often feature in cassoulet. So, if we're going to run through some of the local delicacies, there is no other place to start than with cassoulet, which I saw described in the rough guide as, quote, one of the great pillars of southern French terroir cuisine. It's found across southern France, from the Pyrenees to the Rhone, but it's particularly a meal for the Languedoc generally, and Toulouse and surroundings especially. The general opinion is that it actually originated in a little town just a short distance from Toulouse, known as Castelnaudary, but the writer Anatole France goes into a bit more of an exact description even than that. Spot the religious terms which tell you just how absolutely seriously they take this stuff. Cassoulet, he said, actually comes from three towns which could be known collectively as the Holy Cassoulet Triumvirate, and they would be Castelnaudry, the father, Carcassonne, the son, and Toulouse, the Holy Ghost. OK, so what is it? Well, that's not an easy thing to explain because every chef, every restaurant has their own version. Quite a few of them will claim that theirs is the authentic one. But basically, think stew, think meat, pork, sausage, duck, goose. Definitely with beans added. Most authentically, the Lorague beans that I mentioned a minute ago because they come from the area. You might find haricot beans. You'll probably find a broth of some description. There may be other vegetables. There'll almost certainly be garlic. 
on a blog called Holiday France, I read the following lovely description. Cassoulet is a, quote, rich, unctuous and filling dish, usually served simply with a glass of robust red wine from local vineyards. What you can say is that cassoulet is always cooked in one pot. The pot is locally made, traditionally, from a village near Toulouse, and it's known as un cassole, hence the name cassoulet. Cassoulet, of course, goes back centuries. There are at least two different legends about its origins. I think probably the main one would be that it dates from the 14th century, comes from Castelnaudre, as already mentioned, from a particular time period when the Black Prince was besieging the town, this is during the Hundred Years' War, and the hungry townspeople are shut up inside, thinking, what can we eat, what can we eat? And they gathered all the remaining scraps and devised this recipe. And there were a few bits of meat and lots of beans. Hence, that's what went into the pot. It's said to have sustained them and to have contributed to the fact that they managed to hold out against the invaders. The historian Brian Catlos puts it like this, quote, They concocted a meal so hardy that they were able to defeat the English, whose inferior syrupy brown-baked bean dish could not compete. A different school of thought would tell you that cassoulet actually came to the area along with the Arabs, who arrived in the 7th century. They introduced white beans, which they began to grow and harvest and eat, and people noticed them adding these to their mutton stews and thought, that's a good idea, let's devise our own recipe based around that. Another thing which is said, and doesn't actually cancel out either of those first two possibilities, is around the introduction of the beans, which says that that dates from the 16th century, after the arrival in France of Catherine de Medici. She came to marry Henry II, Henri II, and she's said to have brought with her some white beans from her native Tuscany. These had been given to her as a wedding present because they were believed to have aphrodisiac qualities. And she duly ate them, shared them round a bit, and they proved very popular. Other people started to plant them and eat them, and soon they were being enjoyed all over France, and were spotted then as a really good ingredient for cassoulet. What you can definitely say is that the people of Languedoc today are very proud of their cassoulet. Every restaurant has its own recipe, usually highly secret. There's even an alliance called the Confraternité du Grand Cassoulet, so the Alliance of the Great Cassoulet, an organisation that exists to protect the recipe, I dare say to market it, to celebrate it. And of course, you've guessed it, they claim that only they have the original recipe. If you're out and about at local fairs and that sort of thing, you may come across local chefs dressed up in medieval costumes, celebrating cassoulet. And of course, you absolutely must make the opportunity, or several opportunities, to try some. There's one of the writers in the book called Floating Through France. It's a collection of essays, and Anne-Kathleen Yore, in her essay, describes three different cassoulet that she enjoyed as they were floating down the Canal du Midi and stopping off every evening at a different restaurant. She starts by explaining that she went actually in Toulouse to a restaurant called Chez Fazoul, where she ate a cassoulet that she describes as, quote, delicious and soupier than any others we'd tasted. And she goes on to tell us that for her friend, that was the best of the lot. The friend liked the fact that all the beans were still separate retained their own identities, as she put it. So she enjoyed that. On a different evening, after a bit more floating down the Canal du Midi, they arrived in Castelnaudry itself. And there, they headed straight for the Maison du Cassoulet, and they tried out the cassoulet that was served there. 
They notice as well that cassoulet featured on all the placemats, that haricot blanc, so white haricot beans, were used as decorations in little glass cases around the restaurant, so really a place where the dish is celebrated. And here she reports that the cassoulet was, quote, hot, chunky and satisfying, but not my personal favourite. Before we get on to the one which was her personal favourite, I thought I might just read you a quotation from somebody who isn't quite such a fan. And that would be Rupert Wright in his book Notes from the Long Dock. And this is what he had to write about an evening he spent eating cassoulet. Quote, The culinary equivalent of running across a ploughed field. You set off in high spirits. Halfway across, you are weighed down by large clods of mud. You wonder why you started on this mission. You can go neither forward nor back. In desperation, you trudge on, more out of duty than pleasure. But I think we really should leave the last word to an actual fan. So here's Anne Kathleen Ewer again on the cassoulet which she most enjoyed of the several that she tried. Quote, My favourite was the cassoulet served at the Hôtel Restaurant du Lauragais. Their simmery stew was beautifully served in its own crock with a light oven-browned breadcrumb crust. The crispy-skinned duck leg protruded at a perfect just-so angle. The sausage was delightfully seasoned and juicy. And the beans, well, they were a wonderful blend of both pureed and individual legume, the latter with their identities firmly intact. This cassoulet married all the best tastes and textures in a single savoury serving, beans that were both creamy and chewy, and meats that were succulent, tender and crisp. So I think it might be time to leave cassoulet behind then and move on to sausages. The Toulouse sausage, of course, is found in cassoulet, but it's also a meal in its own right. I don't know about you, but I can find Toulouse sausages in my local supermarket. But I know that the Toulouse ones, the actual real ones, have protected status. And we're told that the genuine ones are only those sold in and around the city of Toulouse. A bit like cheddar, I think. And the law also says that there should be no mystery ingredients, as they put it, no preservatives. The ingredients should be only things like pork and red wine and garlic and smoked bacon. So there you have it, Toulouse sausages. Then of course there's duck and goose, both very popular, both served with great regional pride. There's actually a book by Mort Rosenblum, a lovely book, which is a sort of travel and eat your way through France diary. It covers the whole of France, but it has a chapter on the Languedoc. And the book is entitled A Goose in Toulouse. There's actually only one chapter devoted to Toulouse, but if you're ever going to have time to eat your way around the whole of France, I recommend every other chapter too. Anyway, his description of meeting an actual Toulouse goose is quite memorable. In fact, this event occurred not in Toulouse, but at the Paris Agricultural Salon. But nevertheless, it was a little blast of Languedoc culture. So here's Mort Rosenblum's description of said goose. Quote, He was a real bruiser with a barrel chest and broad back. Fluffy feathers covered a thick neck. His head was high and proud, with a noble bill. He was, I learned, the bigger of two sorts, the Toulouse goose with a wattle. These can top 25 pounds. I'm afraid he then goes on to explain to us that breeders prefer the other variety, the smoothed neck one, because they breed more enthusiastically and they're preferred by producers of foie gras. You may have mixed or indeed strong views about foie gras, which is that pâté made from goose liver, usually from geese that have been force-fed. As an aside, in his book he tells us that 30,000 families in southwest France and Strasbourg make their living from the production of foie gras, 
so it's very much still a feature. Then, of course, there's the great goose versus duck controversy, taken to the lengths that could only happen in France, I think. Mort Rosenblum had it explained to him by various people which was better. Of course, they didn't agree. They were pretty much 50-50, I think. But here is, for example, a restaurant owner, one Dominique Toulouse, explaining what his preference is. Quote, We don't use goose. Duck is much finer, much tastier, more flexible. You can do anything with it. And it is cheaper. For cassoulet, confit, foie gras, not goose, duck. I think it's a brave person who argues with a Frenchman who's so convinced on any culinary matter. Has to be said, however, that ducks are popular too. There were other people who spoke up for them. Mort Rosenblum explains to us that quality ducks bred in the Toulouse area are also covered by very strict rules. They have to be allowed to live 81 weeks at least out in the plein air or the fresh air and they can only be fed on local herbs and grain. People enjoy duck roasted and pan-fried, etc. But it's particularly used as well in something called a confit de canard, which is a recipe that dates actually from pre-refrigeration days. It was a way to use all parts of the bird and to keep them for months on end from one breeding season to another. So you salt-cured the meat, then you cook it in the duck's own fat and pack it into little tins or jars. You can't talk about the food of the region without mentioning fish and seafood. There's so much coastline, of course, very close by, so that's very much a feature. Here's a description from Rupert Wright's book, Notes from the Log Dock. He's in a marketplace, actually in Pezuna, not in Toulouse, but it gives the flavour anyway of the sort of range of sea produce that's available. Quote, The first van you see is the fish van, with langoustine, crayfish still moving in a bucket, sea snails, prawns, live crabs, doomed to move sideways into pans of boiling water, large fish pies, the head of a swordfish, the sword pointing in the air like the gnomon of a sundial, turbo, mackerel, and boxes of sardines and anchovies, both shipped up from the port of Collioure. There are shellfish stalls here too, selling oysters and mussels. Ah yes, oysters, that most French of dishes. We're told by all the experts that you should avoid them in the summer, they're very much for the other three seasons known particularly, perhaps, over Christmas, because they are often the starter for the réveillon, the Christmas meal, which, if you're French, you may start at about midnight on Christmas Eve and enjoy right through to the small hours. In restaurants, they're served on platters, usually a dozen at a time. Here's Rupert Wright again, enjoying oysters this time. Quote, You can douse them in vinegar, but I prefer a squeeze of lemon, just enough to make them squirm. Then you loosen them from the shell and swallow them, but not before a quick chew to extract the flavour. They taste of the sea, but without the salt. Unfortunately, there's only so much room on a podcast, so not going to go through endless dishes, but just a quick skate through a few other things that perhaps you won't want to miss when you're in Toulouse, particularly if you're out and out in the market, say, things that you could buy. A couple of cheeses, local ones, would include le mouli, M-O-U-L-I-S, which is described on the website where I looked at the definition as, quote, a buttery, holy cheese that stands up well to full-bodied reds. And there's also a cheese called le Qatar, so the French word for Cathar, a nutty goat cheese dusted with wood ash and with a Cathar cross to decorate. Sweets and cakes, no shortage of those. Two of the famous ones would be um, Fenetra, which is traditionally made from almonds, apricots, candied lemons, perhaps a bit of marzipan, 
sort of thing you'd buy in a patisserie, and which it's said has been baked in one form or another in Occitan ovens ever since Roman times. The other cake that took my fancy was something called carac, C-A-R-A-Q-U-E, described as a vibrant green chocolate tart. Also a patissier thing, really. Again, with almonds, you make a dough with ground almonds in it, and then you decorate that with bittersweet chocolate ganache and a layer of fondant, which is the vibrant green element. If your taste is not quite so sweet, you might wish to consider something called cashew, C-A-C-H-O-U, which is a type of licorice, which was first made in Toulouse in the 19th century, was sold in chemists, said to have medicinal purposes. People began to quite like it and started chewing it in the same way that some people chew on tobacco, and it became a part of Toulouse's culinary legacy. And you can buy it in department stores and in souvenir shops in metal boxes, little round yellow boxes, cashew. And then lastly, for a particularly Toulouse flavour, you might consider some of the many foods which are flavoured with violet. Remember, violet's one of the symbols of the city, used, of course, a lot in the making of toiletries, but also in foods. You can buy pastries flavoured with violet. I saw jam and jelly and jars of honey, all with violet flavouring, and dishes on restaurant menus where it was used as a flavouring. So we've come all this way with food, without mentioning the other constituent of Toulouse gastronomics, which of course would be wine, which has a very long history in the region, believed to have begun with the Greeks in the 5th century BC, certainly developed further by the Romans, absolutely worked on after that by medieval monks, who, it said, had a daily ration of half a litre each as part of their diet. The wine-growing trade hit the doldrums in the 19th century because of something called the Phylloxera Crisis. 1873 was the key year for that. When some little yellow insects came along and infected the vines so badly and it spread so quickly that it really looked at one point as if wine-growing in the area would just be wiped out completely. People tried various desperate measures. There were people who thought you should irrigate the vines with white wine. Other people thought the thing to do was bury a live toad in every vineyard. Many vineyard owners abandoned their vineyards and moved down to the coast. They realised that the problem was less acute if there was sandy soil, but even that didn't solve things completely. In the end, it was discovered that the solution was, amazingly, to go to America and bring vines from there and plant them in France. This was particularly strange because, in fact, the American vines had originally come from French rootstock, but for some reason, when they were brought back and planted, they were resistant to the bugs and the phylloxera eventually was wiped out. Happily, that's all in the long distant past and the region today, I've seen described in fact as the biggest vineyard in the world. If you count from the Pyrenees right up to the Rhone, all the vineyards that are there, it's obvious that this is an area where wine and vineyards are taken very seriously indeed. Many of the people who live here own vineyards. They pick grapes or they employ people to pick grapes. They blend wines, they work in marketing and selling. Rupert Wright, on his travels, even managed to find a village school which had its own vineyard, which makes its own wine. He describes it as being, quote, a tasty blend of Grenache and Carignan. Those are two types of grape. So that gives you an idea of how rooted in the culture it is when the school children are being brought up right from the beginning to take wine and wine growing seriously. He also waxes eloquent about the loveliness of the scenery, especially if you go in autumn, when, quote, 
Leaves begin to change colour. The reds and yellows and oranges are a sight to match the beauty of a New England fall. So from the area as a whole, all sorts of different wines are produced. Reds and whites, dries and sweets. Grape names to look out for, which are relatively local. For red would be things like Grenache, Carignan and Cabernet Sauvignon. Amongst the white grapes that are found to be most used, there would be Sauvignon Blanc and Muscasset. And there's a great variety of stuff produced, everything from vin de table, the ordinary wine that you might just swig with lunch in a quick break on a working day, to the AOP, Appellation d'Origine Protégée. One of the places nearest to Toulouse where wine is produced is called Fronton. It's about 30 kilometres to the north. And there they've got about 40 vineyards making red wine from the Nucrette grape, which is unique just to that area. So even if you're not going to bring lots home, and let's face it, you probably are, you can try a glass, that would be un verre, or if you want a bit more, un ballon, that's one of those bigger round glasses, or perhaps go straight for it and get a pichet, a pitcher or a jug, and get tasting. As you may be picking up, I don't really drink enough wine to be an authority on the subject, and I don't want to pretend I am, because I'll be soon caught out by those of you who are. However, I can recommend a book called Virgile's Vineyard, written by Patrick Moon, which will tell you lots of quite random but lovely things about winemaking in the Languedoc. The book is actually subtitled A Year in the Languedoc Wine Country, and that's exactly what it is. He moves in, he's there for a year, the chapters are month by month, and takes you right through a year of producing wine. It's enlivened by the fact that this is the story of two of his neighbours. We meet Virgile, who's a very keen young vigneron, or winemaker, lives next door, and tries to teach Patrick Moon everything he knows. He's very committed to perfection. He hasn't got much money. He's just got a few hectares of land, a tiny little cellar, but he's passionate about it. The other neighbour, Manu, who I saw described in one review as a dipsomaniac, he's perhaps got less to say on how wine is actually made, he does make it himself, but I saw one reviewer was describing his produce as being, quote, a private wine lake of unspeakable rouge. But what he is good for is telling us all about the ways of the locals and introducing us to characters. Eager to learn more, Patrick Moon describes encounters with growers and winemakers, all sorts of types of personality. Quite amusing reading. It is a book that tells you some facts as well. You get quite a lot about the history of the region's winemaking. Another review I looked at on, I think it was Goodreads, was saying it's quite informative for those interested in learning more about the entire vineyard-to-glass process. It goes on to say that you'll pick up stuff about vineyard management, sugar and acid levels, fermentation chemistry. But don't let that put you off. It's a great read as well. I saw it described as, quote, a little saunter through a year in southern France. Fascinating if you enjoy wine and history. Well written and engaging. So for a flavour, here are a couple of quotes. To start with, one where Patrick Moon's describing the vines in winter. Quote, they were, of course, completely bare at this time of year, some neatly pruned, others still a ragged tangle, but the delicate silvery grey foliage of the olive trees gently counterpointed the starkness of the rugged fir-clad hills immediately behind me to the north. The beginning of the September chapter states the dramatic moment that's been reached, as Virgil waking up and calling to the author and saying, This is the most important decision of the year, to start or not to start the vendange. He explains that he's taken some sample pickings, he's done some checks on the sugar levels, and he thinks he's going to start on Monday. There's even a description of him doing the sugar checks. 
He started with his earliest ripening variety, the Grenache Noir, then followed with the Syrah from the Jonquière, and then the Sanso down at Nebion on Saturday. The grapes are so healthy, he marvelled. Such concentrated sugar. Amazing potential alcohols. Well, thirteen and a half for Syrah. That's not so unusual. But fifteen for the Grenache, and you'll never believe it. Twenty for the Sanso. That's not wine. It's confiture, the kind of vintage you dream about. So if you'd like to read a lot more of that sort of thing, there's the book for you, Virgile's Vineyard. Actually, when I researched that and bought a copy, I then discovered that there was a second book called Arazat's Aubergines, which is Patrick back in the Languedoc, talking about the food this time. Again, a mix of fact and history and stuff about the local landscape, and also his relationships with his neighbours. We see him digging a large potager for vegetables. He gets taken out to lunch at Laurent Arazat's new restaurant. I'm guessing Laurent Arazat is perhaps quite well known. And he has the good fortune to be allowed behind the scenes and to learn all about how the food is cooked. So again, if that's what interests you, there's a book that you may very well enjoy reading. Patrick learns from all sorts of other people. He makes all these foodie visits. And in the book as a whole, you'll meet cheesemakers, snail farmers, honey producers, salt masters, oyster farmers, all the people who lovingly produce the food that makes Languedoc food so delicious. So to finish off the episode, I wanted to think about a couple of restaurants I found two writers who have written about restaurants they visited in the area and are sharing with us what they enjoyed while they were there. So there's Connie Burke, one of the group of American writers who went down the Canal du Midi in their boat. They stopped at something called the Relais de Riquet. Relais being a word for restaurant, Riquet, of course, the name of the man who designed the Canal du Midi. So definitely an atmospheric place to stop. One evening, And she tells us that what she chose to have there was marinated scallops, bedded in leeks, grilled scampi, and a platter of garlic mussels and sea snails. Rupert Wright describes a meal, admittedly one he ate in Montpellier, but still very much of the region, in which he feasted on a number of amuse-girl, and he had some grilled rouget, which is the French for red mullet, and a roast pigeon's breast, a selection from an enormous cheese trolley, was offered assorted puddings and a cup of coffee. Phew, that sounds like a meal to remember, doesn't it? But actually, even more than that, I enjoyed his description of a meal that he didn't actually eat, just because thinking about it summed up somehow the Canal du Midi and Languedoc food in general. He's describing an evening when he and his wife have slipped away and they're going to go down the Canal du Midi in their boat and just stop at a restaurant that takes their fancy, whatever they come across, and pop in there and have something to eat. And... Unfortunately, as these things often turn out, it took a bit longer and they're floating along thinking and hoping to find something and he begins to imagine the meal that he would like to eat and tells us that, quote, I envisaged a pot au feu, a good bottle of Languedoc red wine, some Roblochon cheese, black coffee, perhaps even a glass of brandy. Ah yes, how French, how Languedoc, how lovely. Makes you want to just set off down the Canal du Midi, doesn't it? And stop off every evening, wherever you happen to find, and take potluck. Or, to put it in a more French way, take pot au feu. So, that really brings us to the end of this episode, and sadly as well, to the end of the Toulouse series. I hope you've enjoyed visiting the lovely pink city with me. Perhaps felt inspired to go there yourself, or go there again if you've already been. I've been rather taken aback by some of the violent history, Pope's telling people to kill them all, 
people starving to death inside besieged cities, that kind of thing. But I do have an admiration for the fierce independence of the place, the spirit that seems to have existed over the centuries, where, whatever the Pope says, you might hide some Cathars in your town or village anyway. And whatever Hitler says, you and some of your neighbours will risk your lives to spirit Allied pilots back over the border into Spain and off home so they can continue the fight. You've got to admire them, haven't you, really? As for what to enjoy today, a lovely array of beautiful architecture, regional food and wines, the pleasures of the places nearby, Carcassonne and Albi, a trip up the Canal du Midi, lots of art, lots of history. Really, what's not to like? I hope very much that you've enjoyed your visit and I hope too that you'll stick with City Breaks. We're going to start a new series from next week, planning to hop across the border into Spain, turn left, go down south and end up in the lovely city of Sevilla or Seville as we Brits call it, where again there's an absolute wealth of history and culture to enjoy, not to mention lovely weather, lovely food and of course some fiestas as perhaps only the Spanish can manage. So. I hope you'll join me for that, but for the meanwhile, I'm going to sign off in French one last time. And thank you very much for listening. Merci, and wish you goodbye. Au revoir. <laughs>